You're going to want to open your Bible, uh, tap your way to John chapter 14. We're going to spend the lion's share of our time in 7 through 14. But I just want to kind of recap for us what has taken place, uh, what Jesus is in the midst of doing. And so what we find is during this upper room where they have shared a meal, Jesus has talked about that Judas is going to betray him. Peter has given his bold uh, endorsement of Jesus. Jesus says, uh, just, just so we're clear, you're also going to turn away. Um, you're going to deny me. And so then he goes in and, and 14 opens up and he's focusing on the heart of the disciple. And so he begins to communicate to him because he recognizes that in that room they're shaken. That in that room they're afraid. That in that room they're not really sure what the future looks like. But they're fairly certain they don't like what Jesus has just said. And so he's told them, look, I'm going, I've got to go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And so they ask the question, then how do we get there? And so we come to verse 6 of chapter 14. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus points at his exclusivity. Jesus essentially says, look, if you want to know God, if you want to know the Father, the only way to get there, the only way to find yourself coming close to him is through me. And we know that Jesus is foreshadowing, pointing to his eventual death, coming soon, his death on a cross. And so he said that in verse 6. But what he wants them to understand, that if you truly know Jesus, you, can, you become a worker in his kingdom. And the same thing is true for us. When we truly know Jesus, he makes us workers in his kingdom. And so he starts in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And, and the disciples are getting ready to be fundamentally confused. And so what is Jesus doing there? He's indicating, he's showing them, telling them that in some ways, by agency of the fact that they have spent time with him over these last three years, they have also been spending time and growing closer to the Father. So he says, if you had known him, if you had known me, you would know him. And so there's this interrelationship between God the Father and Jesus, and, and he's going to make this acute. He's going to make this bold. He's going to make this true. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Philip. Philip stands up. Peter always gets uh, so much flack for being the guy that says things. And, and Thomas always gets flack for being the doubter. But look at what Philip says here. <clears throat> Philip points and says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Look, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I feel like you're a little bit unclear. You're saying if we had known you, we'd know the Father. But look, like I'm a person who deals in concretes, and that, that just seems a little bit abstract. This is just kind of outward philosophy. Show me something practical. Do you remember when I was kind of giving instruction with the loaves and the fishes and, and helping the guys to understand what you're talking about, Jesus? That's the type of practicality I'm talking about. Let us just see the Father. That's not a big ask. I think that's going to be enough for us. Now, lest you just think that, what's Philip on about? Why would he say something so incredibly audacious? Where does he get off asking this kind of thing? Well, he's got good company. Do you remember Moses? Moses, uh, in Exodus chapter 33, is, is in conversation with God. In verse 18, he turns to God. He says, please show me your glory. 
He wants to see something concrete. He wants to see something physical. He wants to see God before him. So if you read down in chapter 34 and verse 6, it says, The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses, having seen God, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And Jesus' word to them is, if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've known me, you've known him. So there's this interrelationship between Jesus and God the Father. But Philip looks at it and he says, look, we just really need to see something concrete. Please quit speaking to us in abstractions. So you can imagine being Jesus. You have a couple of things on your mind. But Philip has asked, he has seen, um, fit to ask for something physical, something demonstrable. But look at Jesus' response to him, verse 9. Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you possibly say, show us the Father? It is possible to spend your life in church to learn a terrific amount about God and never know Jesus. And then as a terrific sadness. I meet with any number of people who come in and describe uh, issues that are going on in their life, gross moral failure, any other number of difficulties. And over the course of that conversation, it becomes abundantly clear they know a terrific amount about God. They've been very good at attending church, but they don't know Jesus. When we know Jesus, it transforms everything in our lives. Because to know Jesus isn't just to know him in a factual sense where you might say, look, I know my pastor. I know he's six foot one. I know he struggles with the 200 pound line. I know all of these things. I know he tries to get us out before noon, but sometimes he gets verbal diarrhea. I know all of these things about him. But you may not actually know me. We can know information about Jesus without actually knowing him. And so Jesus, in this moment towards Philip, he says, have you known me and been with me for so long, still you don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to witness the Father. Paul writes it this way in Colossians 1.15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we recognize that we cannot see God. Even Moses just saw this backside uh, passing of God's glory as he went by because God said to see him unveiled would obliterate it would destroy Moses. And so he saw the passing glory of God go by and heard God's testimony of who he is, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, and merciful. But Jesus is showing us who God is. Over the course of his entire ministry, everything he did was to point and direct people towards God the Father. So every time people engaged Jesus, he went out of his way to repeatedly call them to recognize the movement of the Father in his ministry on earth. And he tells them if they'd known him, they would know the Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so he's expecting and understanding that he's going to bring illumination to the lives of the disciples. So they want to see him. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but by the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. So Jesus is giving this really interesting teaching, and we can find it once again in John 10, 38. In John 10, 38, he wrote these words. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And so we see this tremendous interrelationship between God, the Father, and Jesus. And so one of the more difficult things to understand within Christianity is the understanding that we worship a God who is triune. So we worship God the Father who is fully God. We worship Jesus' Son who is fully God. And we worship the Holy Spirit who is fully God. And so Jesus herein begins to describe how he and the Father relate to one another. And so he's giving us this understanding. And you might describe it and say in some sense he's describing functional subordination. And so there's a subordination uh, in there, but it, it is due to function. It's not of stature. It's not of nature. That somehow God the Father is high and mighty, and Jesus is somehow less than him. And so any subordination that Jesus is showing is strictly a matter of function and not of essence or entity. And so Jesus is describing this and, and talking about how close he is with the Father. We recognize that over the course of Jesus' ministry, he only engages and does those things that God the Father directs him to do. Think about that. You have the Son of God on earth. You have God in flesh on earth. All power and authority are his. All majesty and might uh, do his name. He could do anything he desired to do. But what does he engage in? The ministry the Father gave him. And what does this speak to our hearts of our, our craving, our desire for autonomy and freedom. I want to be a self-made man. I want to do whatever is before me. I want to work to 65. I want to retire. I want to live on a beach. And we have this all-powerful God who steps in, and he says, I want you to spend your retirement years where nobody is asking you to punch a clock, where nobody is asking you to wear a tie, where nobody is checking what you do. And I want you to spend those remaining years you have left on this earth serving me, pouring out your life before me. You want to live on a beach? I want you to move to the desert, and I want you to share the gospel with people that would never hear. We serve a God who directs us, and we see in Jesus what it is like to follow in full obedience. And when we know him, when you truly know Jesus, you find these willing steps of obedience happening, and you find yourself moving in these directions because you speak Jesus, you breathe Jesus, you are walking in the light of Jesus. So we can spot it in our lives, these moments where we have an opportunity constantly set before us, I can choose the way of Matt or I can choose the way of God, Right? I can do this thing over here, it's going to be easy, it's going to be instantaneous, and it's going to be delightful. Or I can submit myself and do the things that God is calling me to. And this is not to say, it's not to suggest that everything God calls you to is going to be awful. Maybe that's just your life. Maybe your life is awful. But it's not just to suggest that everything God calls you to is going to be this tremendous sacrifice, and you're going to say, Whoa, is me! Why do you call me to life in a desert? Maybe it's because you have terrific heat tolerance. Did you ever think about that? Like some of you this week, I recognize you don't have terrific heat tolerance. There's a reason you visited nursing homes. 
But some of us in this room, we have terrific heat tolerance. And maybe God has designed you and God has made you so that you could go and serve in these areas. God has given you experiences. He has surrounded you with people. He is orchestrating the affairs of your life so that your life might be spent, might be poured out to bring him the most glory and the most honor. And we see that day in and day out through the sun. In essence, Jesus says, when you've seen me following this pattern of obedience, I have laid before you the course which you should walk. When we know Jesus, we are made into workers for his Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me and I in the Father that the Father is in me or else on account of the works themselves. So Jesus repeatedly, before the Pharisees and before others, they would repeatedly discount what he would do. So Jesus is over there, he'd forgive sins, and they're like, oh my goodness, what is wrong with you? You're constantly engaged in blasphemy. Jesus is like, like I just healed a guy. He was a paralytic and now he can walk. <clears throat> you invite Jesus to a party, he's liable to turn water to wine. I mean, Jesus needs to get somewhere and he encounters a body of water, he can walk across it. And so Jesus is saying over and over again, look, if you struggle to believe what I'm telling you, at least believe the things you've seen. Philip's request was, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus' response back to him is, have you not seen all of these things? Do you remember like two weeks ago when I raised Lazarus from the dead? Everybody cheered and said, he was dead, now he's alive. And you're asking me to show you the Father? The works we see of Jesus today are a transformed life. The works we see of Jesus today are a sinner made new. Men and women coming from darkness to light. Men and women who were once lost being found. Men and women who were once wandering and following their own way, submitting themselves and turning and following Jesus. Every single time that happens, it's a work of God. Every single time that happens, it's a miracle. And we see it over and over again. If we struggle to believe what he's writing, let's believe what he has done. Let's believe what he's done in our hearts and the hearts of those around us. Now, what we encounter in 12 through 14 creates no amount of, of confusion. It's one of these things where you can rip it out of context, and so it's going to require you to lean in. If you have up to this point managed to stay awake, even more so from here on out, okay? Lean in, pay attention. Poke yourself in the eye if you're struggling. Look what he says in verse 12. <clears throat> Don't do that to your friend or neighbor. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, so what does it require? It requires belief in Jesus, belief in Jesus. For us, where we are, we would say it is belief in that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again. We are identifying ourselves with him. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Okay? We're there so far. We're going to do the same things, the same kind of things that Jesus has done. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Okay, Jesus, what are you up to? Because I'm going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In what reality or conception are we doing greater works than Jesus did? Now, I can tell you that people will take this, and, and, and what they'll communicate is, do you remember when Jesus turned water to wine? I'm never buying wine again. I'm only buying buckets and buckets of water, and I'm selling them at Walmart. I tell you, Jesus walked on water, and I've tried it a number of times. I've not been very successful, but I think this is fundamentally uh, a lack of buoyancy in faith. Jesus isn't talking about these things. 
I don't think Jesus is, is writing this and saying, guys, I've done some pretty amazing and great things, and, 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 and you guys are going to do things that make me look like this, this no-talent hack. He's not talking about that. In some sense, I think one of the things he's talking about, one of the things he's communicating, if you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, it was confined. It was small. He poured himself into a select group of people in a confined region. In the days and weeks following Christ's resurrection, we see the gospel becomes unleashed and it spreads to the thousands and to the ten thousands. Where Jesus' work in his ministry happened in a small sphere, we find ourselves being the recipients of the incredible expanse of the gospel and that in a significantly short period of time. But what else is he talking about? We get some sense of the idea of these, these, greater, this, these greater works when we begin to look at Jesus' commentary about John the Baptist. Over in Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist is this precursor figure. He's there and he's communicating that Jesus is coming. You need to repent. You need to be ready. So Jesus had these words to say about John the Baptist. He says, this is uh, he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before <clears throat> your face who will prepare your way before you. And truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus says John the Baptist is a good guy. He's an important guy. He's playing a pivotal role in history, and he is purposed to communicate, to be a forerunner of Jesus. Look at what he goes on to say. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist, Jesus says, look, nobody born of woman is better than John, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is better than John. In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he sets a line that we find ourselves on the other side of this, mark, this demarcation within history where we are moving and operating in this new realm of experience and existence. Why? It's on the basis of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John's testimony in his ministry happened on this side of this, this salvation history, and we move on the other side. And so just being on this other side of the line finds us moving and operating on the, on the better side, the greater side of history. It's because Jesus is with us. Do you notice what he says there? Greater works than these will you do. Why? Or how, on the basis of what is he communicating these to them? He says, because I'm going to the Father. The only reason we're engaged in greater works is because Jesus left and went to the Father. Do you see that? It's not because Jordan's such a great guy and he's so incredibly talented. It's not because Charles is such an amazing man and he's so talented. It's not because Courtney's so amazing and she's so talented and her heart's so surrendered to God. It's because Jesus left and went to the Father that we are able to do greater works. This is it. It's not because I'm more righteous. It's not because I'm more talented. It's because Jesus left and went to the Father. Now look at what he goes on to say. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we begin to get this sense that the, the doing of the acts, these greater acts and these greater works that are perpetrated, they are not us doing them. They are Jesus doing them. Do you see how he is tying? He says, I've got to leave and I've got to go to the Father. And whatever you ask, I will do. 
The greater works that we're engaged in is us being willing to pray for those hard things that God would lay on our heart. This is why he ties it to his will. He says, whatever you pray in my name, I will do. Jesus isn't some enchanted talisman that if we say his name or we have some special uh, line and we say, oh, Jesus, in your power of your blood and your high and your mighty name, be exalted forever and ever and ever. And we run down through this list of superlatives and adjectives and adverbs and all these things to compound and make them beautiful that God is compelled to say, man, I wasn't going to do it, but they hit 157 adverbs. That was amazing. I guess I'm going to do it quickly. The reason he's moving is because we're asking in accordance with his will in conjunction with his will. These greater works that we find ourselves engaged in are not us doing them. They're not Jeremy doing them. They're not Ken doing them. They're not the last four days of us uh, serving our bodies up as buffet lines for chiggers. The greater works that he is engaged in is God working us through the power of Jesus. When we know Jesus, he makes us workers for his kingdom. We submit ourselves to him. We find ourselves moving in line under, in cooperation with this Holy Spirit moving through us so we know that through the course of our lives we're living in obedience to him. It's not about us. There's this way of applying this and looking at this and saying that, that I have the market locked up and I can do whatever I want and it's going to be amazing. And there's a way of reading this and understanding this that finds us in this incredible place of humility. You serve a key and vital role in the unfolding narrative of our God, even today. Do you know this? Do you know that, that some of you, you're your neighbor's greatest hope of ever hearing the gospel? Some of you, you are your coworker's greatest hope of ever hearing the gospel. Some of you, you are the people at Walmart's greatest hope of ever seeing the love of Jesus visited upon somebody. God has placed you strategically. He has given you experiences. He has given you family. He has given you inadequacy so that you need help that you might demonstrate humility. He has given you pain so that you might move in empathy towards those who are in pain. He has allowed you to encounter terrific difficulty so that you might recognize somebody in the same vein and you might move to them and minister to them. God has graciously given you all these things so that you might engage in the greater works of being a conduit for our Lord Jesus Christ so that salvation might be visited upon each and every home we come to, every person we meet, every life we might see changed. Are you willing to be engaged in greater works? Are you willing to lay down your will? Are you willing to surrender your dreams? to follow Jesus, that the greater works of the kingdom might be realized and might be seen in the engagement of your life for as long as he leaves you here. Because this is what's at stake. Let me pray for us as we begin to transition to take the Lord's Supper together. Let me ask the deacons to come forward. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to respond to you. Recognize that the response that many of us need to make is the response to turn to you in faith.
that we might confess our sins to you and turn to you and ask you to forgive us. And some of the rest of us, we've been moving and operating as acquaintances of Jesus, but never really allowing our knowledge of him to translate into our lives. God, would you lead us to a deeper knowledge of Jesus in that? Would you help us to know you? And knowing you, would you lead us to be workers for your kingdom in this advance? Father, I pray that you would bless this time that through your spirit you'd be convicting us of sin. You'd be leading us forward in righteousness. Help us to focus on the sacrifice of Jesus in his coming. We pray these things in his name. Amen.